Yes, my name is Bond. James Bond. Welcome to Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. I certainly hope so, too. Celebrating the 50th anniversary of Bond in films, Arnie, Stuart, and Brock will be watching and reviewing every James Bond film, ending with this year's newest Bond film, Skyfall. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Be warned. Now playing has a license to spoil and use mild adult language. The Americans are going to be none too pleased about this. Listener discretion is advised. What, no small talk? No chit-chat? Today we're talking about From Russia with Love, starring Sean Connery, Daniela Bianchi, Lottie Anya, Robert Shaw, and directed by Terrence Young. This is Brock, James Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A. And this is Arnie from Illinois with Love. So we are at From Russia with Love, the second James Bond movie in our James Bond mega retrospective, and this is, to a lot of Bond fans their favorite James Bond movie. This is one of the big ones in the James Bond canon, especially in the Sean Connery era. Right away, we get a big movie in the canon. Number one or number two is almost always going to be people's favorite films, isn't it? I very rarely talk to somebody and they go that the fourth was their favorite, maybe with Friday the 13th or something. But on most franchises, it's your first time or your second. It's Star Wars, it's Empire. Very few people are going to be touting Jedi. I don't know. We'll have to see. But this is a big one for some people. I agree with you. It wasn't for me as a kid. I don't think I ever sat through this one in its entirety. I will say that when I watched these Connery years as a child, it didn't hold much attention to me. I didn't remember it. I didn't know the theme. I knew it was set in Russia, but beyond that, I couldn't have told you what the plot was, what happens, anything. This one, I come to almost entirely fresh. I'm right there with you, Stuart. Again, if I saw this one back in my marathon, and I really thought I saw them all, no memory at all of anything I'm seeing here. This is, to me, like watching it for the first time. And I'm right there with you both. This is one of the movies that I know as a Bond fan that, again, so many people love. And until watching this for the first time, I watched it three times for this recording, the first time watching it, I have never been able to watch this movie without falling asleep. And I've tried at least once a year for the past three or four years to rewatch this Bond movie because so many people love it. And I'll tell you exactly where it is when we go through the movie today where I start to go to sleep. And I guess now playing compelled me to stay awake (laughs) and I was happy for it because in subsequent viewings, I was able to stay awake completely. I agree with you both. The only thing I remembered from my first viewings of this movie was the train, the train fight at the end of the movie. Everything else was pretty much new to me, though it had a faint similarity because, again, I've watched the first 20 minutes so many times. (laughs) And then after that, it was kind of foggy in the middle. Oddly enough, this one feels very different than the last movie, but it's almost entirely the same principle. Same director, same screenwriter, same cinematographer, same Bond, but a totally different thing going on this time. More money, less Jamaica. That's what I'm thinking is going on. (laughs) You can thank the budget for that. They had a lot more money to play with because the first one was such a big hit. And this one was a very important movie to do because 
of the President Kennedy connection I mentioned last time. They really wanted to make it this one because it was topical, and it came out the year, of course, that President Kennedy was assassinated. Oh, really? I didn't put that together, but you're right. It sure did. They made this for him? From Russia with love is to JFK with love? They know that the popularity of James Bond in America became so high because of Kennedy mentioning it on his top ten books. They had already had Dr. No in production, so it was a no-brainer for them to put Russia Love next in. And then, of course, Kennedy was really excited about it. Did he get a chance to see it? It was, according to a JFK biography, the last movie JFK ever saw. Oh, well, that's at least a positive spin on a pretty bad November day. Yes, that's the plus side. Yeah, I don't know how to react to that. <laughs> you know, if I get shot in the head in two days, at least I saw this movie today. <laughs> I look for the positive, guys. Yes, obviously a national world tragedy when we lost JFK, but at least he got to see his favorite book. I'll let you know whether this is one of my favorite books. From Russia with Love is the fifth Bond book released, published. I'll be talking about that in five weeks, but for now, we're still covering over at Books and Nachos, Casino Royale. Let's get into the plot. Arnie, do you got this one? Spectre leader number one, Ernst Blofeld, plans to steal a Lecter, which is a Russian electric decoding machine. He's tasked his agents number three, a former Smirsh agent named Klepp, and Smirsh is that Russian spy agency we mentioned last podcast, and number five, a world chess champion with getting the Lecter. And the plot is to have a Russian cryptographer, Tatiana Romanova, think she's working for the Russian spy agency Smirsh, attempting to give misinformation to a British agent, pretending to be in love with him, having seen his picture in a Russian intelligence file. She says she wants to defect, but will only defect to James Bond and bring with her one of the Russian Lecter decryptor machines that both the Americans and the British have also been trying to get. But in reality, Spectre is arranging the whole thing with the dual aims of stealing the Lecter and having revenge on James Bond for killing their agent Dr. No in the previous film. The Lecter is to be stolen and Bond to be killed by Spectre super assassin Red Grant, a tall, muscular, deadly blonde with a garrot in his watch. Aided by Istanbul station head Kareem, Bond meets the girl, steals the Lecter, and boards a train for London, but is pursued by Grant, who kills Kareem. Grant then poses as Bond's contact, gets Bond at gunpoint, and explains every single aspect of Spectre's plot. <laughs> <laughs> As, that's a Bond staple. I love it when they do that. It makes it easier. I don't have to follow this thing. I could have used it in the last one, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but Bond's booby trap briefcase allows Bond to attack and then strangle Grant with his own wristwatch garrot, and then Bond rides off in a motorboat with the machine. As punishment for their failure, number one has number five assassinated and tells number three that she has one last chance to make things right. Number three orders an attack on Bond's boat with a large number of Spectre soldiers, but Bond defeats them armed only with a flare gun and then gets to enjoy some time with Tanya in a Venice hotel where number three makes one last attempt to steal the Lecter, posing as a hotel maid. Tanya turns on her Russian boss, shooting the woman, and all ruses over, Tanya can finally honestly love or make love to Bond on a Vendus gondola as credits tease that James Bond will return in the next Ian Fleming thriller, Goldfinger. So the last time we talked about how a lot of the groundwork of the James Bond formula came in to be with Dr. No. Here with the beginning of Russia with Love, we get two major pieces that were not there in the last movie that have become James Bond staples. 
I noticed they perfected what you call the gun barrel scene. Because in the last one, it was there, but it was rough, right? The audio wasn't quite there. The gunshot sounded so stock Here, they perfected it. The James Bond theme is going as he walks in. It's got smoother movement. In one film, they went from almost there to what we'll see all the way up to Casino Royale. Almost. It's still not Connery walking in the circles. What? That's heresy. I didn't even notice. I guess that's the point. It's James Bond. It may not be him in all the stunts either. It's James Bond. (laughs) In the next one, it's Connery. Cool. I'll be on the lookout. And then we get our first James Bond Pre-credit sequence, one of my favorite parts of every time going into a new James Bond movie, what is the pre-credit sequence going to be about? Where's James Bond going to be? He's always like at the tail end of some adventure. That's why I presume we're watching at the start. He's walking around some kind of hedge maze courtyard, something or rather. There's some blonde assassin guy who's clearly going to get it. It's like Dolph Lundgren in the 60s version, isn't it? I mean, that's what I was the vibe I was getting off of him. I did not recognize him. I didn't recognize him either. And I, isn't it great? Twelve years later, he would be the haggard sea guy with the missing teeth in Jaws. Really? That Robert Shaw? You got it. I did not notice either. He used to be built, huh? Oh, yeah. And he was a playwright at the time, actually. He was acting on the side. His first love was acting. So that got him as an actor on this one. And what a coup. This guy, from the moment he walks on the screen in this first scene, he has amazing presence. And I'm very happy he's in this movie. Yeah, he's got more star quality than any of the henchmen from Dr. No. Already, I'm hooked into this. I'm excited and shocked. They get me. I did not see it coming. When Bond is killed, when Connery goes down, I was like, what the heck? I mean, obviously, I realized it wasn't going to be the real Bond, but I didn't know what had happened. I'm right with you. I was immediately pulled in. I gave the last film a pretty solid not recommend, but within seconds, I felt I was in a different film. Just everything here, the way it's filmed, the look of the film. You said the budget's higher, Brock. You can tell. I don't need to read anything to see it on the screen from these very first frames. And Connery's looking better, too. Even if this is faux Bond, we find out it's not him. It's Connery. It's got his hair and it's got the outfit. He looks, and maybe it's just camera angle, but he looks a little buffer. He looks a little bit more confident, a little tougher. And right away, I'm with it. But yeah, I didn't realize that they'd be setting up the plot because I'm used to these opening scenes being the end of the last mission, not the beginning of the current. And I can tell you why that is. This was not originally made to be a pre-credits sequence. In editing, because they are playing with the plot a little bit, they rearranged the first 20 minutes of the movie, the scenes in there. This was originally supposed to take place after the song. So they moved it before the song, and a tradition was born. But also, listen to how the three of us are talking right now. Man, was that a good decision. They hooked us all right in and to wonder who these people are. Also, as we've talked about with the second Alien podcast during a retrospective series there, if we didn't see Bond in this opening scene, we wouldn't see Bond for like, what, 20 minutes in a James Bond picture. So that also serves that purpose as well to remind us who's James Bond in this whole thing. Yeah, we want to see him early, and by killing him off, quote-unquote, we now fear the villain in a way we never did last time. We like the guy who's our hero, we like the guy who's going to be one of the villains. I'm jazzed. And immediately I know, wait, we have a good henchman. I really wanted a good henchman last time. Right here, I'm like, there's somebody out there who's specifically trained to kill Bond. Not just to kill 
to kill Bond. There's a worthy villain immediately. A lot of my problems with the last film are gone in seconds. But that said, I remember last time I was enjoying the first 45 minutes too, so I was still nervous going into this. I really, I'm like, I'm... Uh, you're doing okay, but, you know, we're two minutes in. Let's see how I feel a hundred minutes in. A fun piece of trivia. They first filmed the scene with the guy when they took off the mask. He looks so much like Sean Connery. Audiences were confused. They had to refilm it with a guy with a mustache so people would realize it wasn't really James Bond. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. But, you know, like the last movie, this is only one of a multitude of henchmen. They have not realized that there's only so many henchmen we need. There are about eight different baddies, but all of them fall under the rank of the big baddie. I did not realize this was a Blofeld adventure. Yeah, I didn't either. Since we don't get Bond for the first 20 minutes, we get Blofeld, and I'm surprised because they immediately start referencing Dr. No. My feeling with Bond is that it's such a anthology type thing that there's not really a connection. I'm surprised at how it's linked. This entire plot, the reason Bond specifically is involved is they want revenge for what Bond set them back last time with that nebulous nuclear radio station. The links to previous movies is rare in James Bond. It's not unheard of. This is the first time we see it, and they pretty much abandon it for quite some time after that. But every once in a while, they do refer to something in James Bond's past that comes back, and we'll talk about that as we go. Certainly the new movies feel linked in ways, but yeah, I'm right there with you, Arnie. I didn't realize that we would even get a mention of Dr. No. And yeah, Blofeld wants revenge. Was he number two? Is that what I can presume? Is that Dr. No was the second in command, and now he's pulled in number three and number five to get vengeance? That is my presumption, yes. And yeah, they only call Blofeld number one in the scene, but in the end credits, they do have him credited as Blofeld, not as number one. So, is Blofeld a character from the books? Is that why they knew to put that name in the credits? I believe so, but Stuart will definitely let us know over at Books and Not Just. Maybe number two is the cat. I don't know. I always <laughs> loved it. This is sort of the defining Bond villain. Don't see his face, stroking an evil-looking cat, but I get it all. With minimalism, and by withholding all that they do, they create more menace than Dr. No and all his fake plastic hands ever could. Actually, Blofeld appeared in three James Bond novels. His first appearance was in, I believe, Thunderball, the novel of Thunderball. Which was deep into it, way past the From Russia With Love novel. But it came out before the From Russia With Love movie. Yes. In the book, it was Russia who was the villain. So to avoid any political overtones, they changed it to Spectre. And so, therefore, they included Blofeld here because they're using Spectre again. They changed it from the book for that very reason. I like that continuity. I like that it's Spectre again. I was a little bit apprehensive about the bringing in of such a silly agency as Spectre in movie number one. But if you're going to bring it in, bring it in. Make it G.I. Joe versus Cobra, MI6 versus Spectre. It gives us this continuing thread. And now... I kind of get the impression from these early scenes, Blowfield is like Dr. No. If Dr. No was number two, maybe they were kindred spirits, because Blofeld, he's sitting there petting a cat, okay? This man, he's not going to be dangerous, but he's got people working for him that are dangerous, and he's so nebulous, we never even see his face. So it allows for this evil to be dangerous and continue throughout the series. I think what makes the scene play, because if you actually listen to what they're saying, it is all kind of silly. It came across to me like very superhero 
kind of stuff, and I'm not putting down superhero things here to make very clear to all our comic book fans who are listening, but if you watch a cartoon of even He-Man and Skeletor kind of stuff that the villains how talk about their plan and they're all so intense about this. I think the acting in this scene plays it so straight. You have to have good actors to play with some sort of silliness and to make it work. And I think we talked about Grant already. I think Rosa Klebb is a fantastic, fantastic Bond villainess henchman character as well. You mean Frau Barbicina? Exactly. Exactly. She has made such a indelible impression that many, many years later, she is, of course, completely spoofed in Austin Powers. And I think it's wonderful that these actors in this scene played it so straight and with conviction that you go along with it completely. Because honestly, if they didn't play the scene correctly, the whole movie has gone to pop. You know what I really like, too, is that they take what I was seeing as a problem and expand upon it. Last time, I was like, oh, yeah, they say that they're a different agency than the East, that they aren't Soviets. But at the end, they're all made up of disgruntled Soviets. Here, it is a mixture. Grant is Irish. He is from the West. He would be working side by side with Bond in a different scenario. But now they have someone like him and someone like this Russian chess player and this club woman. I think that that's cool. It feels more all-encompassing. It feels like they are their own separate entity. They are the third Siamese fighting fish watching the other two fish duke it out and plotting how they're going to be the last one standing. And Spectre's got its own island this time. I don't know where it's located. Maybe they moved into Crab Key. It's not being used anymore. Hey, it works. They got schools for assassination and karate. Like, I want to go there. Like, I want to experience this. This is a big staple of James Bond. People think about the opening the door. I think Wayne's World even spooked that. The walking through a training sequence for really no reason. <laughs> They're walking through the training. And there is a reason, of course, they were going to film another scene here and they changed it. So they included it in the film here. What got me about the training sequence when she goes to find Grant is the head of the island, the agent there. He's played by an actor, Walter Gotell, who plays Major Gogol, who is the head of the KGB in like five or six James Bond films down the line. So when he shows up, I'm like, what is Gogol doing here? I thought this was Spectre, not the Russian. And I got so confused <laughs> why he was here for a long time, only because of my experience with James Bond films going forward. It took me, like, until the end of the movie to realize he's playing a different character. Well, they are recycling actors this time. I mean, Blofeld, we don't see his face, but it's actually played by Dent, the professor from the last movie. Right. I think they just kind of have, like, a party of, like, these people enjoy working with each other. Ah, come over. No one will notice. We just won't shoot your face. Yeah, they recycle. I, I appreciate that. It's very green that way. But on the other hand, there's a big deal about Bond films. You can't do more than one different characters, and they break that rule two or three times, and when they do break that rule, it's confusing. It really is, and we'll mention it later as we go through. Speaking of confusing, I do feel like by having that teacher, it adds too many henchmen. At this point, just to keep track, we have Blofeld wanting to avenge Dr. No's death by employing Kleb, the chess player Kronstein, Grant... And this other guy. I mean, that's four people underneath him to take out one dude. I, we saw the opening. You only need Grant. I feel like there's at least one too many pieces in play here, but it's an epic they're going for. The chess player really seemed unnecessary throughout the whole thing, because he shows up at the beginning to talk about how smart he is. He shows up at the end to be given the blame for the failure. In between, it's really Kleb who 
is the one seeing. She's the one orchestrating it. First of all, compared to Ursula last time, even though she's an evil lesbian, I am happy to see a woman in a position of power, even if it isn't an evil institution in the Bond film. Yeah, it's not very progressive in seeing gay characters, but yeah, it's totally fun for the villains. And yeah, we admire a woman that's cunning, that's smart, that has poison-tipped shoes. I'm totally down with Cleb. And she's so tiny. It really adds to it that she's so small and she has such presence. And her putting her hand on Tatiana's knee was a huge deal at the time. Big deal. But I'm really glad they kept it in the movie because it really adds a lot, doesn't it? And that subtle movement adds so much to that character. It wasn't that that got me. It was when she strokes her hair. (laughs) I'm like, wait a second. Do you use conditioner? Anyway, so I think the character of Kleb also being a female, we don't see a lot of female villains at all. And you would wonder why after the success of this character here. Maybe because she cast such a big shadow they didn't want to. But what an inspired, inspired character. Well, they always seem to have the bad girl in Bond movies. Last time it was that faux Asian Miss Terrell. But this one actually, you feel like she could take Connery. That's rare. That's what we needed. The fact that she could actually outsmart or kill him was not something we thought about with Miss Tarot. That was very clearly just a girl out of her element who had a good night and then was locked in jail. Here, something else. If none of these other henchmen were here, Connery would still have met his match in this little woman. And also, again, not to harp on it, but by making her gay, first of all, progressive for the time. Second of all, it's going to be the one woman who Connery can't win over with his magic penis. Well, yes, that's exactly what it does. Exactly. He cannot turn her into a Miss Tarot, and that will never work. Not that I think that he'd want to, but yeah, your point's made. And yes, on top of these others, we now have a fifth henchman, but who, she was also the Bond woman, Tatiana Romanova, the former ballet dancer. She thinks she's working for Soviets and pretending to defect so that she can actually get Bond? She knows that she has to trap Bond? Is that the plot for her? It's to give the British misinformation specifically about that, and possibly to trap him. I get the impression that she thinks she's going to trap him trying to steal the Lecter. My question is, does she think that she's going to kill Bond or be in a position where Bond will be killed because of what she does? I don't know, and I'm curious to know. She clearly falls for him. So I'm wondering at what point does she compromise her mission? I think the plot was that she was supposed to seduce him, not fall in love with him, obviously, but just seduce him. And therefore, what she thinks then, the Soviet agents would then kill him because he's in a moment of vulnerability. Put him in a place where he wouldn't recognize that he's in danger. I'm not sure if she was the one supposed to kill him or not. That wasn't entirely clear. I don't think she was supposed to kill him. I don't even think she was supposed to think about him dying. I mean, she's brought in because she's loose, right? I mean, first of all, she's a cryptographer, but she's loose. She's had three lovers. Yes, but she's beautiful. I mean, that's why she's really brought in. Bond will not be able to resist. Even though he knows that she is a plant, it's quite obvious, and that everyone back at British headquarters comments on the fact that, oh yeah, this is a trap. Still, she's so hot, you gotta at least spend the night with her. You know, yes, she's at least gonna lure him into bed and make a sex film together. She's going to give him the machine that may, in fact, not decode Russian 
It doesn't matter. You know, here yet again, you follow Bond plots only so far, and then you're in a fantasy. And this is kind of where I give up. But it's not really clear how innocent Tatiana is in all of this. I take it to mean it plays best that she only thinks she has to bed him and in the process falls in love. Right, and she has no idea about the Grandmaster plan of pitting the two sides against each other or playing each other as pawns. I do love that the British intelligence are totally onto them, and the lure of the get, the MacGuffin of the Lecter, is what makes them spring the trap just see how far it can go. And I do love that, that everyone's aware of it, but they're not because they're played the entire time. And it's really kind of fun, the layers of that. If you talk about Bond plots not being all that important to a Bond movie, we've had this conversation last time too, yes, usually that's the case, but there is that level here of how Bond is being played for most of the movie, being strung along for most of the movie, so Spectre can get what they need from him, and they only will entertain killing him after their mission to get the Lecter is complete. Yeah, that's like a bonus, you know? It's like a, but wait, there's more. The main mission for Spectre is get the Lecter. Mm-hmm. And it's really kind of nice how it's layered, and it's very rare in my memory of James Bond movies that we see something so complex. It's kind of nice. Well, it worries me that you say it's rare, because I love how deep this plot goes with this person pretending to be this person, but really being this person. It's layers upon layers upon layers that kept me invested in this movie from beginning to end. It's sophisticated. What I was surprised with, what I rarely experienced with Bond, is that there is this level of sophistication. And, I mean, the last one was sexy, but this one, the sexual power play, feels like it is the plot. Who's in charge? Bond is going into a plot smiling, knowing that he's going to get tricked. But is he smart enough to stop the trick before it gets him? I like this sort of battle of the sexes. It actually feels kind of like a Hitchcock movie. I've got to say, out of all the Bond movies I've ever watched, this one feels like it could have been directed by Alfred Hitchcock. It's got a lot of North by Northwest kind of vibe to it. Well, quite literally, later in the movie. Yeah. Well, Brock, you mentioned that MI6 knows this is a trap. So before they send James in, they outfit him. Gadgets! I'm so happy there's gadgets! And Desmond Llewellyn! I'm so happy Desmond Llewellyn is here! The guy who played Q in like 17 James Bond movies. He is the same guy you see in Octopussy as an old man. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I was happy to see the real Q. I don't know who that Boyd whatever his face was last time. This is the guy I know. And so yeah, he gets like this spy suitcase... It releases nerve gas if the wrong person opens it. It's got a sniper inside with infrared. There's some extra ammo, and I don't know why the coins are there. Anybody figure out the coins? They don't do anything. Something to hide in there to make somebody want to open the case? I thought it was like traveler's checks in case he got in a spot he can actually cash those in or something. That's what I thought it was. Okay. (laughs) I would have preferred bombs, but that's me. (laughs) But still, it has a secret knife. It has the sniper rifle. It's got so much going for it. And I'm just so happy to see, yeah, Q giving him gadgets. And sure, by today's standards, these are very modest gadgets. All of them exist. But for the time, this was like sci-fi. Absolutely. And it's notable that they play it completely straight. He just gives him the information, and we actually hear him say, now you try. And he tries. <laughs> That's the scene. It, it was none of the shenanigans that will come with cue scenes. And as you said, Arnie, it's very down to earth. But it feels so right. It's so cool to see Q Branch 
outfit him with something. Yeah. It would have been really playing into a fantasy of the men watching at home. Everybody knows what a man with a suitcase represents. The idea that he actually is carrying all this weaponry, that just takes it to a whole nother level. It just enriches this fantasy of the 60s. So Bond quickly goes to Istanbul to get the plot in motion, and he goes and meets his contact there, Karim Bey. Love him. Love Karim. Here's another improvement over the last movie. This guy's funny. I really think he is amusing. You know, when we see him, he's got this beautiful girlfriend. He treats it like going to the salt mines when he has to, like, go be with her. Like, he's got these two sons that dress up and pretend to be police or drive decoy Rolls Royces so that they can get away. He's got secret passages under his embassy. This guy is cool. He's got a giant periscope. I mean, that's great. I don't know how the Russians don't see that in their embassy, but cool. Totally cool, and he, I thought he was British intelligence stationed there, but he, he's a Mexican actor, and I, then he employs the Bulgarians, so I got a little confused on nationalities, but that's it. I didn't really care. I loved this character as well. Yeah, a lot of fun here. A real step up from Quarrel. No offense, Quarrel, but you really never got an opportunity to be this cool. And he's here to help the transaction take place. He spies on the Russians all the time. One of the sons picks Bonds up from the airport, and they're already being followed. He knows it. That's what life is in Istanbul. I like this idea of everyone being in on the joke. And, you know, maybe the Russians know there is a periscope in their embassy, and they've got one that is also in the English one. I feel like everyone is one-upping each other here. It's part of the comedy, of this sort of subtler, more sophisticated comedy going on. I'm liking that, but this portion of the movie, where you say there's too many characters, there's a lot too many in Istanbul, because there's all these Russians, we're introduced to all these gypsies, it becomes a lot to keep track of, a lot of hard-to-follow foreign names, not to be xenophobic, but they're harder for me to follow and harder for me to keep track of when they're names that aren't common to me. What are you talking about? Vasily, Kolosky, Binsky, Krolinsky? <laughs> That's exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't even bring up Babra and his two gypsy girls. Yes, no, you're absolutely right. Not only are there too many characters in Istanbul, as much as I like the location, we spend too much time here. I actually would have preferred more of the plot to take place on the Orient Express once they finally get on the train. It comes really late in the movie. That said, I'm really having a good time. It's just a little indulgent. I have to say, I did enjoy the Istanbul things, but the gypsy scene, I really felt that they took way too much time there. And when I mentioned earlier where I started to fall asleep all those years ago, this is where I started to fall asleep. You're nuts! I'm not nuts. It's a tangent that has nothing to do with anything. They have a big fight scene, which is fun to watch once they get to the fight scene, but the two girls fighting has nothing to do with the movie I'm watching. It's a complete tangent. It's how James Bond's magic penis can build bridges. <laughs> That's true. These were two girls that were going to kill each other over who would get the gypsy man's son, and when Bond gets called an honorary son, he bangs them both. And they're both cool with it. That's wonderful, but it really isn't needed for the plot of the movie. It's cool that Grant is there saving Bond during that scene. It's kind of nice, but I think you actually can cut this out and go right to them getting the plans in the mosque, and it would not have been missed from the movie. You could have cut this, but this isn't what I would have wanted you to cut. First of all, it adds some dimension to Karim so that later on when he dies, you care. And second of all, this is exciting to me. This scene is 
every bit as fun for me. I get a lot of Raiders out of this movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. And this scene to me is as fun as when Indy is fighting all the people in the marketplace. And I would rather have cut the periscope scene or some of the intrigue there than cut this bit, which is actually fun and so well staged versus the crap they called action in Dr. No. I'm sitting here, my jaw's on the floor. The worst scene in From Russia with Love is as good as the best scene, the nuclear plant exploding in Dr. No. I just can't believe how much is going on in this scene and how much fun I am having watching. I'm going to come down in the middle here. They needed to pick which things to focus on. It's not that there's any one of them is wrong. It's that by having all of them, it drags the pace out too long. There's just too much stuff. There's this gypsy camp attack, which is very exciting. It's like a Western. All of a sudden, there's stagecoaches and flames and knives throwing. And Bond has a funny bit where he chops a tent down on somebody. I like all of this. That's cool. Then we go to a mosque, and there's some guy in glasses and a beret. I don't even know who that is. And he gets killed. And there are so many things leading up to the breakout of the decoding machine. The whole point is to get the decoding machine. Well, it takes so long to do that. Something needed to come out here. The assassination of the Kerensky guy coming out of the billboard woman's mouth or whatever. All of it is cool. But by having all of it, you do hurt the movie. It does feel a, a little bit rootless. Exactly. And you actually probably wouldn't need the assassination scene if you cut the gypsy scene. I do like the action scene part of it, but the big part of the gypsy fight that we are supposed to get out of that is Grant saves Bond's life for the first time. He does the same thing at the mosque by killing the Russian guy trying to pick up what Tatiana is supposed to be dropping for Bond, which is the plans for the Soviet consulate. The exact same thing is accomplished. He just does it twice. And so, yeah, it's a great action scene, but I don't think it's necessary for the movie. Well, what it's doing is establishing a couple things. One, it's giving us sex. It's giving us action. That is never a shortcoming in a Bond movie, and it's good, so I'm having a good time. It's also telling us that Grant is in the shadows watching all over this. He's sort of a protector of Bond. He's actually saving Bonds until Bond can get on the train and he can get the device from Bond. So it lets you know how powerful this Grant is. If the opening scene didn't already tell you, this guy is looking more and more like someone that is more badass than Connery. You're right, but again, we established that again in other scenes. It keeps coming up, so it's repetitive, so you don't need all of it. So I think we're saying the same things in a little different ways, that what we would cut or how we would cut it. I think Arnie putting the periscope scene in earlier tells us how they're going to escape the consulate later on. It's a setup. True. Probably one of the scenes they should have cut, but I love it so much, I'm glad they didn't, is when they cut away to the British office and they listen to, you know, Bond has some tape recorder and a camera and he's gotten Tatiana to talk more and we finally get a little bit on Money Penny here. I didn't realize how, I mean, it was obvious from the last movie she kind of has a crush on Bond and every woman really does, but it's funny how she wants to listen to the dirty talk. She actually is intrigued and wants to hear all the sort of details of Bond's sex I didn't know that about Money Penny. Yeah, she's a perv. Who knew? I love the fact that she flirts with James so much, but they both seem to understand that this is never going to happen so we can play this up. It always seems like an unspoken rule kind of thing. And that's what I love about their relationship. And why wouldn't she? I mean, obviously, it's a fantasy of hers to be with James Bond, but she clearly knows this ain't going to happen. I honestly thought when I was watching these that someday the two of them would hook up. You know, I thought it was like the moonlighting situation where he had to go through his women, sow his British oats, and then 
he'd have Money Penny waiting for him. Yeah, but then she would just end up being like the Sylvia chick, who finally does get to bag him. She's seen in the beginning here that same woman from the last movie that was chasing him back to his house or whatever that place was. She confused me in this one because that's the role I thought Money Penny was supposed to be in. You well, know, that's my point. I think Money Penny makes a better version of that. I hope we never see that chick again. Interesting note, you should say that about Money Penny. The actress Lois Maxwell was offered either Sylvia or Money Penny, and she didn't want to be a harlot like that on the screen, as she put it. So she chose Money Penny, who just infers and, and flirts to the woman who actually puts out on the screen, and she made the right choice because she was in, what, 15 Bond movies as Money Penny, and we never see Sylvia ever again after this one, even though she was promised a whole bunch of movies. This is the last time we'll see her. Oh, good. I'm so encouraged by that because she is the one dead weight they carried over here. That's good to know. Yeah, good. Yeah, it's one chick too many. I mean, it's not like Bond is lacking in women. I mean, he gets the two gypsy girls, he gets Sylvia... He gets Tatiana. Sylvia was one too many. And one callback to the previous film, I didn't need. And I think you're right on. We talked about earlier in this very podcast how the Bond films are really self-contained and don't have a lot of callbacks. I think they did that on purpose. And after they did this movie, I think they realized they didn't need the callbacks as much. Well, eventually they decide they're going to go ahead with this plot. The whole point that why he's there in Istanbul is to get this device. Did you notice they set it up to do it on the 13th and then Bond like gives him a look and they go... Okay, the 14th. Is he superstitious? No, he's lying to Tatiana, which is, again, what I love. Layers upon layers, he's banging her. He's being completely brutally honest with her while banging her. I'm really not that into you. I want the lector. But he knows enough to play her to the point of telling her it's the 14th and then doing it on the 13th. Ah, okay. I wish they hadn't chosen the... 13th to do it on. I thought it was a superstitious number, but that's funny. Okay. Yeah. We didn't really talk about how she kind of sneaks into Bond's room and she's nude behind that screen and that's how she seduces him kind of thing. I thought that was awesome. It's the first time we've ever seen that sort of thing in a Bond movie and certainly was something remarkable to see in this one so in 1963 when the movie was made. And I think it played really well and I love Connery in that scene with her. That is some saucy dialogue. I've got to say, he's sitting there in bed with her, complimenting her look. She says her mouth's too big. Not for me. I was like, ooh, <laughs> wow. So you took it the same way I did, huh? Oh, yes. There was only one way to take it, I think, and she probably did it. But yes, behind all of this, I think the reason that she thinks she's being a double agent is she knows her KGB guys are behind the glass behind her filming this. Grant later on says she doesn't know there's the camera there. I thought she didn't know that it was Spectre, but that she did know there was a camera. No, she didn't know that they were being filmed either. Well, how the hell does she think having sex is doing anything for her country? It's gaining his confidence. It's a con job. Plus, it's James Bond. It's not a hardship for the ladies. No, I get that much. But again, I'm wondering where she's seeing her duty in all of this. Well, she's also told... Sleep with him and do what we say, or we will kill you. If this works, you'll be lauded as a hero. If it doesn't work, you'll be buried. So, sleeping with Cleb, which might be worse. And when Grant monologues later in the movie, he says that was part of their plan to get her out of the equation. Once she gets the job done with Bond, and once Bond gives them the lector, they're going to use the film to set up. She was going to try to blackmail Bond with his film, and they kill each other in the process. That's all it was. I'm still not convinced they fixed the Bond girl must be stupid thing, but she is a hell of a lot smarter and more together than that 
Ursula Andress is. And so for that, I'm definitely liking this Bond girl a lot more. I am, because she has layers herself. She's not just on a beach picking up shells that happen to be nuclear. She has a reason for being there. She's is the plot. From Russia with love, she's what's coming from Russia with love. I wish she was slightly deeper so that I could tell when the act ends and the love begins. I honestly do think it's after she gets the touch of James Bond, or maybe a taste of James Bond's magical penis. <laughs> It could have been fleshed out a little bit more when she transitioned over to actually falling in love with the guy. I do think her acting in this movie is leaps and bounds over Ursula Andress's. I know she was dubbed. Obviously, she was dubbed. But her face acting is great throughout the movie. I really found her convincing, and she's beautiful on top of it. Yeah, no complaints on the Bond girl this time. Not at all. And eventually, they bust the thing out, and they're on the train. And this is really now heading into North by Northwest territory. I was just shocked that they get it so early and leave Istanbul, and at that point, the movie just becomes a standard chase film for the second half of the film. I didn't feel like this came too soon. I'm not saying it did. I'm actually impressed with the pacing. After the last one, I expected it to languish more with more randomness. (laughs) (laughs) A chase film, it was more of an espionage movie, I thought. A chase film turns into after they get off the train, I thought. But here on the train, it's more of a standard kind of spy thing. I really did enjoy all the... People trying to act casual, listening to doors and in and out of train cabins and things. I really like that. I like how Grant was the silent guy there always. Never, never knew he was there, but he was there the whole time. All these little elements going on. Everything set up before in this movie is paying off in spades when they're on the train. And having such a close, confined space with everything, too, adds a lot of tension to it as it goes on. I'm loving these locations. Last time it felt like a vacation, you know, it was fun to be in Jamaica, but this time they're really hitting my sweet spots. Like, I love a good train. I'm just a sucker for that kind of thing. You know, Murder on the Orient Express, Agatha Christie, and all this. It's just such a classic setting for intrigue. And I love being on the train. I love Turkey. I think the idea that they're chasing up the the lines between West and East, all of that is thematically great. The choices that are being made here are much more smart and fun and sexier than they were last time. I agree. I wish that the train didn't keep stopping. You know, I realize they have to set up this thing. Twice he meets his contact and does the cigarette thing. So that way, when he meets Grant and does the cigarette thing, he thinks that Grant is with MI6. But it feels like the stops have no purpose. They were on the train. Grant was on the train. It felt like it should have moved a little bit faster. We get that Karen Bay is killed by Grant, and then we have to have the scene where he has another son who has to be given his personal effects. These stops could have been a bit more streamlined. Could have, but this is also the movies of that time. We're used to a faster-paced modern movie. Go back to any movie from the 60s, and people wanted to spend time in a movie theater. You paid your dollar to be there. You wanted to spend all afternoon there. I think that people saw movies as an escape. They wanted long movies. Oh, I'm not saying I wanted this to be 81 minutes. What I'm saying is I would rather have had the running length be things that seemed more integral, more exciting. I would prefer more diversions that were gonzo fights like we had in the gypsy camp and less diversions of here's your father's effects. 
I don't know. I like the game that Grant has been playing this whole time. I like the fact that we know he's bad, but we don't know when he's going to make his move. And the way that he comes in pretending to be an English contact and drugs her in the dining car, all of this stuff, I think it's cool. I agree. I think all these stops and everything like that is adding to the tension. It's a slower build, so when Grant does make his move, it pays off stronger. I think they're building and building and building to that. When Karen Bay gets killed, because he gets killed, we see emotion and bond in that wonderful scene between him and Tanya in the car when he strikes her and he sees in her face that maybe she doesn't know as much. And it really is kind of neat. He doesn't get it clearly there. He gets it later on from Grant. But that scene between them, when he's really angry at her, he's basically saying, come on, I know what's going on here. And she's saying, but I love you with her eyes. You know, It's amazing scene and great acting. And we couldn't get that without this pacing. It, it really helps build up to these moments. So when Grant does make his move also, it's fantastic. The tension is there. But maybe I'm too soft. Maybe I'm too PC. But in the last movie, we talked about how we loved the scene where he killed the geologist, even though it was such a hard thing to do. Here, he bitch slaps Tatiana. And I'm like, ooh, you hit a girl. I, I can't I can't go with that. I, I He wasn't hitting a girl who was tough. He didn't hit Cleb. I'd go for him hitting Cleb. Cleb would deserve it. But here, he's used this woman for a lector. He's used this woman for a lay. And now he's beating her around. And I'm like, dude, that's, that's not cool. Even though I know your friend just got killed, hitting her is not cool. He didn't slap Mrs. Tarot, even though she played the same game last time. I hear your point. And it's not helped out by the meta-knowledge to know that Connery went up on wife abuse charges. But it is a dramatic moment, and I agree. It changes him after that point. He realizes something that gets him to suspect that she is not as duplicitous as he has first surmised. Right. And I want to go on record saying I am not advocating women abuse by my comments. <laughs> I'm saying in the moment with the characters. Yeah, I'm agreeing with that. Even though I think the slap might have been a step too far, I like the emotions that are coming out of this scene. Right. Now, Bond also, we talked about, is a brutal, brutal man, this sheen around him. And I think maybe because of this scene and because it comes across so brutal still to this day, they may have softened those edges a little bit going forward because of that, Arnie. I think you might be onto something there as well. That aspect of Bond doesn't always come through at all. Well, take it from my mom. She said, I don't like that anymore either. This is exactly the kind of behavior that has sort of turned her off from Connery, and she was a big fan back in the day. You know, the one thing I like about the train progression, too, is I don't know where they're going to end up. They think they're going to get off here. Where's this train headed? They could wind up on the wrong side of the Iron Curtain here. That's the exciting part, is that in trying to get away and get back to Venice, they could actually wind up stuck in Russia. I never got that impression. I thought they knew exactly where the train was going and that they were going that way. They are in Yugoslavia. They really are at this point in Russia light. I thought they were traveling to safety on the Orient Express through there. I had no impression that they ever were worried about being stranded somewhere. No, they keep talking about going back to London and Venice. I thought they knew what they were doing. I never got worried about that one. But finally, Grant makes his move. The tension is ratcheted up when he learns the cigarette trick and Bond takes him into his confidence. I was a little unimpressed by Bond in that moment that he had the jump on Grant 
and yet he let it go. I like how it happened, though. First of all, he's still not sure if Grant's an MI6 agent, and with Bond, he started off this whole thing, even during that interview scene that Stuart was talking about, he only cared about the lector. And so finally, he's like, what do you care about, the machine or the girl? And Connery had to, like, bring out the swagger, like, yeah, lectors before hoes. I liked how that was done. I don't think that he thought Grant was a double agent. He knew that he drugged her, but he thought he was one of his own. He thought that there was only passage for him. Why would you get this woman to defect if she was a double agent? They're not going to take any risk with her. She's not important to them. The device is what's important to them. And then it's by him explaining that she has no idea of this that makes him realize he can't leave her behind when it's time to flee. Right, but I'm saying I just was surprised that Bond fell for it. Well, I was just as surprised that Grant opened the suitcase and got gassed. I mean, they both make kind of silly mistakes here in the train cabin. The biggest mistake being, I'm going to explain every bit of this plot. I mentioned it in the plot summary, but I could even go with, they try to explain it away. Even the writers knew there was a problem with this. He's like, I'm going to tell you everything because I enjoy watching you squirm as I explain how you've been beaten. I like all of that. It's when he gets into the, I'm going to give names, dates, places, people to you that are like, oh boy, I know this is a Bond thing. I know it was a different time. I know audiences weren't as sophisticated. I know they weren't eye-rolling, but it's not 1963, it's 2012, and I'm like, huh, that's going to be your downfall. And it is, and it's just, it wasn't done in an organic way. It was the worst James Bond stereotype, which is appropriate, I suppose, but not good. Well, that's exactly the thing. It's like, nowadays, it's completely a stereotype, and we all make fun of this, and millions of dollars were made on spoofs of this sort of thing, because, yes, how crazy it is in hindsight. What I like about this scene, Stuart, you just said that it's crazy that Grant fell for it. I think Bond played him perfectly. I thought it was great. I can honestly say I wasn't ready to let Grant go yet. I feel like this movie suffers when Grant gets taken out. You know, it's a cool fight. Don't get me wrong. You know, he gets to use the choke wire and the knife and all the gadgets come out at this moment. And we wanted to see a scene to see who was really going to be tougher. Flashes back to the beginning. But that should be the climax, right? That should be at the end. This, to me, is your main villain you're going to physically fight. Blofeld's not going to put up much of a duke out. But once he goes down, there's still a lot of movie yet. There's still a lot of chasing of helicopters and boats and all of that. But for me and my interest level, I don't think anybody else is going to take Bond out. This is the only guy that I thought could do it. And once he's gone, it really is sort of a drop in the suspense level. I love the brutality of this fight. I love it. I also found out during my research that they did all but one shot themselves. That's really cool that these actors went all out like that. Kind of fun. And we don't see a fight like this brutal for a long time. It becomes cartoony sometimes in the fights. This one's awesome. You mentioned Raiders earlier, Arnie. This reminds me of how Indy goes against the big guys. I love this fight, and it's, it's like a long one. It's like two or three minutes, if not five, and it works. I've watched it over and over again. But you're right, Stuart. After he's taken out, it's all downhill from here. When he's taken out, I expect the movie to end. And when he's killed, and then we go to Blofeld with three and five, I'm like, well, we're in the denouement. It's over. I couldn't believe there was more movie left. They killed five because he was less cool. And then there's still more. Now there's going to be boats attacking and this last hurrah of action in a helicopter chase. Yeah, the guy that's in charge of Spectre Island training is now 
coming in there. He's got the poison boot. He's the one that kills number five. He's just not the same threat. You didn't build up to him. It's just not important. So it only becomes fun for me at the end in Venice when we have the ending with Crab coming back dressed as a maid. That was fun again. But all this fighting in between helicopters, it just felt like bad cribbing of North by Northwest. That whole crop duster scene, like we just got to do it. I'm like, eh, you really don't. I agree. I really have loved the action. I love the boat scene because it's fun. I like the pyrotechnics of this movie. Those boats blowing up is better than Dr. Nosebase blowing up. Yeah, it really is. I'm enjoying the action, but after Grant is dead, it just doesn't have any danger to it. Now it's like, ooh, pretty fire, but I'm kind of biding my time till the end until, like you say, Kreb comes in in her maid outfit and I'm like, wait, I know Blofeld lives. I have that meta-knowledge. I'm wondering, really, if Kreb might make it off with the lecture. I think she might do it. Yeah, and I like the way that they twist this around, and now it's suddenly a movie about Tatiana's choice. She's been playing a Russian that's defecting, but actually believes she's a Russian that's being loyal to her country. Well, now she has an active choice. She can stay with Connery, or she can go away with Kreb. And she chooses Kreb. It's not until Kreb says, but I'm going to kill your lover, that she has second thoughts. The Rosa Kleb scene is a classic. It's fantastic. It's well done. I have one small complaint with it, is that she holds Bond at gunpoint. She actually disarms him, backs up, when she could have pulled that boot out, kicked him in the shin right there, and Bond was gone. And they talked the whole movie about getting revenge on Bond. One of the reasons they wanted Bond in this plot is to get revenge on Bond for Dr. No. She had the perfect opportunity to pop that knife out and kick him in the shin. And she didn't do it. But you didn't know she had those shoes. It was like the extra surprise when that busts out. It's like, oh, yes, she got the shoes, too. Logically, you're probably right, Brock. But this whole scene is quite a joy. And like I said, I like the fact that it's Tatiana's choice here. She's the one, ultimately, it's not Bond that sort of closes the movie. It's Tatiana making the choice that she's going to go Brit. Yep, you're right. It's a great scene. And, of course, Arnie, you mentioned Austin Powers earlier. They mirror this in the first Austin Powers movie. Yes. So, Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend From Russia with Love? Stuart. This one was a surprise because I remembered it from my childhood state of Dr. No was the fun one and this one was kind of boring. Well, that's probably true. If you're six or seven, you're going to have a lot more fun with Dr. No, but this is sophisticated. It's sexy. It's sleazy. It's sleazy Hitchcock is the only way I can describe it. There's a fun power play battle between the sexes that plays out in some really cool locations, and it has a quality that I didn't think the Bond movies had. It has a sophistication that makes it seem like not just a good Bond movie, but a good spy movie. This is a very strong recommend. I was delighted to find that this is really quite a step up from Dr. No. Arnie. Yeah, recommend. Big action scenes, lots of action, fun intrigue, complex, detailed plot that's really tight, and Sean Connery owning the role of James Bond here. You guys were talking last time about how Connery had Bond right there. I'm like, yeah, I'm not quite sure I entirely agree. But here, this man commands the screen. There's some gorgeous, gorgeous women in this movie, but your eyes never leave Connery. Recommend, and thank God. After last one, I was really nervous. I'm now hoping for more, but Brock, you made me nervous with your comment again. We'll see, but I recommend this one for sure, and I can see why people think it's their favorite. I am 
right with Stuart on how surprised I was, how much I enjoyed this movie, because I always remember it as the one I fall asleep in, as I mentioned, and it's really a good movie. It's a good Bond movie. In addition to being a good movie, I really enjoyed it. So I will have this one being bumped up on my list of favorite James Bond movies, and I'm looking forward to watching it again. I watched it three times for this, and I'm looking forward to watching it again because it's such a fun James Bond movie. So yeah, absolutely recommend. A lot of great stuff here, a lot of classic James Bond moments here, a lot of great filmmaking done here. The sets are great in this movie, and the film work is just fantastic. All the elements are really coming together. And they got a good theme here. I didn't know this song either, and I don't know who's singing it, but he's kind of a dime store Sinatra. I guess Matt Monroe is famous maybe in England, but this is a good theme. I like it. They got the tambourines and the gypsy opening, all of this. I'm totally down with the theme, too. That makes one of us. I don't mind the song when it doesn't have the words. I liked it better in the opening with the gypsy dancing and all that, but the end with the From Russia. Oh, really? It's boring. Yeah. I, don't, I don't. Yeah, I don't really care for the lyrics. I love the theme. John Barry is a legendary Bond composer. He's done a lot of great themes, and he will be around for a while with James Bond. A lot of people think he wrote the James Bond theme that we all credit with James Bond. It's actually Monty Norman who wrote the don 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 right? But John Barry usually gets credit as the Bond composer. I liked the score of this. I liked it as an instrumental in the opening. At the end, as a little pop song, it didn't do anything for me. I didn't care for the musical style. But I did like it as an opening credit song because it started as this theme and then faded into the James Bond score. I liked the music throughout. But yeah, as the end, it's there. Jacob accused me of having everything on my iPod. I would never have this on my iPod. Like the last movie, if they had the money to get Harry Belafonte, I think it would have helped if they had actually gotten Sinatra instead of the fake British Sinatra. But I'm disagreeing. I'm going to be rating the songs independently of my experience of the movie, and this is a good one. It's certainly a hell of a lot better than Underneath the Mango Tree. And this movie, you say it's one of the favorites, it's the first movie we're encountering that has a video game adaptation, albeit made 40-some years later. <laughs> James Bond is known for video games ever since the revolutionary GoldenEye came out, and looking for more properties, they did From Russia With Love, random. I'm glad they didn't stick with the what was available at the time, pre-Pong. I'm not even sure that we would be able to tell what it is. But yes, this is a recent video game of an old movie. You know it had to be a good movie if they thought it was worthwhile to go back and turn it into a contemporary video game. But that was kind of in vogue at the time. They made a Godfather video game, too. They were, like, desperate for new media. I almost bought a PlayStation for the Warriors video game. But like with the Warriors video game that got the original actors back to do their roles in the game, they got Connery to do From Russia With Love. No way! Really? That man doesn't work anymore! Isn't that great? That's cool. I, I hats off, you know, and probably they came to him. No doubt he was laying on a beach with a microphone sticking over me like, what's the line again? I mean, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't think he worked that hard to do it, but props to him for recognizing that it makes the game special for the fans that he would sign off on. Brando did the Godfather one as his very last acting gig. He didn't even get to finish the lines. It was like his Orson Welles Transformers was the Godfather video game. So if you played the video game, or if you want to contribute your take on that, or this movie, or this conversation, please go to our forums and tell us what you think. We have a conversation about every now-playing movie we talk about there in our forums. 
You can discuss it with us on Facebook, of course. We post about movies and our reviews and things on Twitter as well. Please follow us there. And if you're in the mood, we would really appreciate if you give us a positive review on iTunes so fans like yourself can find us and listen to our Bond conversations and hopefully they will contribute into the conversation as well. So now playing will return with Goldfinger. That sounds like a dismissal. I was rather looking forward to breakfast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now-playing James Bond Retrospective Series. Job's done. The bitch is dead. At our website, nowplayingpodcast.com, you can find the other episodes in the James Bond series, as well as other series such as The Avengers, Batman, Spider-Man, Predator, Rocky, Rambo, and many more. I thought Christmas only comes once a year. You will also find individual movie reviews such as Green Lantern, Cowboys and Aliens, Avatar, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. Talk here, listen here. So that's what I've been doing wrong all these years. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Shame. We barely got to know each other. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Just do as I say, will you? Yes, James. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I take it that this is not a social call, 007. Correct. You should have brought lilies. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. M really doesn't mind you earning a little money on the side. You'd just prefer it if it wasn't selling secrets. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. So you put your money where your mouth is. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. Well, that's quite a nice little nothing you're almost wearing. I approve. Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series is edited by Alex, Ray, Phil, Dylan, Jason, Jeff, Brock, and Arnie. One rises to meet a challenge. Now Playing is not affiliated with MGM UA Entertainment Company, Columbia Pictures, or Warner Brothers Pictures, and no infringement is intended. That depends on your definition of safe sex. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. This never happened to the other fellow. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. I assume you have no regrets. Madame, what about you? Of course not. That would be unprofessional. tease that James Bond will return in the next Ian Fleming thriller Goldfinger. It's not Garrote. It's, I always say Garrote. I don't know but how you pronounce that word. I have no idea how you pronounce it. Yeah, I was, The, the I, T I, is I, silent. I would have said I a, choke, it up. a choke There's wire pops out of his watch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a nylon <laughs> cord comes out of notes. his watch. Choke yeah. wire. <laughs> it, it's Garrote. The T is silent. T's are silent. I don't doubt There's it. like eight I, different spellings also. Some have T's, some have one T, some have two T's, some have T-T-E. Yeah, that's good to know for Words with Friends on Facebook. Yeah. All right. If I ever need to get a choke wire on my next watch, which I don't wear anymore, I'll know how to say (laughs) Ask for it. I think that's something they should include with the iPhone 6, is the Garo feature. (laughs) Absolutely. Maybe Belkin can make that as a case. Case with a choke wire. (laughs) Good for con exclusives. 
Maybe they were kindred spirits because Blofeld, he's sitting there petting a cat, okay? This man, he's not going to be dangerous, but he's got people working for him that are dangerous, and he's so nebulous, we never even see his face. So it allows for this evil to be dangerous while still, and continue throughout the series. In this scene here, I have to say... Are you I laughing want at my to... tiredness? <laughs> I really am. I oh. think that when you hear yourself, you will be surprised at how little was said there. But I appreciate... <laughs> you know what? <laughs> so let me but do it, it again. Really... the way he said it, wasn't it? He said it with conviction. <laughs> um, but anyway... I, um, I have, I have something I, to say on that, uh, yeah. if you don't... All right. 